The following program is presented by the National Committee on United States-China Relations, www.ncuscr.org. When the publisher asked me to write this book, the issues were slightly different than what China faces today, although not everything has been addressed. So back in 2015 and 16, you know, people were talking about, well, China's economy collapsed because there was capital flight, uh, the reserves were falling below three trillion. So the markets were very nervous about what was going on there. And so I was approached and asked to address these issues. And so my book largely starts off by addressing the shadow banking industry and the associated debt issues with that. And then I also discuss other areas such as, you know, the shrinking labor pool, the tensions between U.S. and China that could lead to a trade war. Uh, so I try to talk about all the areas that people say are vulnerabilities of China, and then I more or less discuss how China's policymakers are addressing them, and then talk about possibly how could China maybe actually surprise on the upside, uh, given that uh, Beijing uh, has been very proactive in trying to uh, upgrade the economy from being a middle-income uh, economy to what they hope to be, you know, a, a rich economy like the U.S. someday. And so they have a number of initiatives there, uh, which I'm sure a number of you are aware of. So, uh, so that's sort of, you know, quick summary and overview of my book. Um, I'm happy to talk about, you know, what's happening since then. So obviously, uh, people uh, were worried about the shadow banking industry, and I don't know how many of you have followed that, or, or um, you know, folks who are uh, in the financial industry and understand what that means. But basically, you know, there are a lot of uh, non-financial institutions that were involved that and some financial institutions, but they weren't regulated perhaps, <laughs> that created lots of wealth management products uh, that were off balance sheet and weren't really recorded. And they were creating a lot of debt in the country. And so, um, so a lot of people were worried that uh, this fast accumulation of debt uh, would be unsustainable. And if there was you know, missed debt payments, you would have a Lehman Brothers type of situation in China. So I talk about the numbers there. And when you look at comparisons of what China's debt levels are in the shadow banking system versus, say, the US or the UK, from a percentage, percentage perspective, it's actually not so out of line, frankly. Uh, their debt levels are not worse than ours uh, in many respects. Uh, and so I talk about that hasn't reached a point where it should be so worrisome. But more importantly, uh, two things. The policymakers were aware of it and were uh, trying to come up with ways to address it. Uh, and so they have lots of ways that a lot of policy tools. So uh, they were trying to juice up the stock market there to maybe get these companies to go public to sort of equitize, you know, turn their debt to equity uh, so that 
would be one way of deleveraging. Uh, more recently, the government has announced, you know, various asset management rules where they're trying to close all the loopholes uh, that the shadow banking industry <coughs> in China were taking advantage of. Uh, and so, you know, I guess people are expecting those rules to come out, uh, you know, before March. And, uh, and that process of deleveraging and getting these firms to cooperate and, uh, and abide by the rules, you know, they'll be probably given as much time as they need. Uh, probably initially they'll be given a year and a half, but it could take longer depending on how serious these issues are and how seamlessly they could make that transition. Um, and so, so not only do they have policy tools and that these people are on top of it, but essentially I make the argument that economics, financial markets, you know, these are, these are social constructs, right? These are, this is more of a social science, they're not hard sciences. So, uh, so like with any nation or civil society, you come up with your own rules to make uh, it work for you. And, and while they have adopted many of the Western way of doing things uh, in order to sort of assimilate into our global financial system, um, whatever is happening within their borders, uh, they can come up with the rules to deal with it because they're using their own currency. And so they have more flexibility there to sort of test out different policies to see what kind of effects they may have and, and adjust accordingly. Uh, and so unlike the U.S. where, uh, you know, they don't have like lots of rules and regulations that have accumulated over decades, they have taken the approach of being more flexible. Uh, so if something doesn't work, they'll just throw it out and start over again. So for instance, you know, when they wanted to ban winter coal, you know, because they wanted to clean the environment and realize that that had a negative <laughs> effect on people who um, had no other source and were freezing in the winter, then they kind of backtracked. So the same will be true in the financial system in China, their approach to the economy. If things are uh, not going to work out, the policymakers will step back and course correct uh, because they have that ability to. Um, and, and given that their, their uh, you know, number one objective really is to ensure sort of a stable economic environment there to provide as many jobs as possible to uh, their citizens and to try to ensure that all their citizens eventually will have a decent standard of living by Western standards, then, uh, then you can see that they're going to probably bend the rules on a number of things, especially when it comes to, you know, say bankruptcies and other debt issues, that they'll probably figure out ways to address it so that it doesn't cause a lot of economic pain and um, a lot of job losses and, and, and such. Uh, because, you know, their primary concern is not about profit making per se, uh, but more about ensuring, you know, social stability and harmony there. And, um, and so from that standpoint, uh, 
you know, I, I would say that whatever happens, whatever is thrown China's way, they're going to bend like the bamboo. They're going to uh, deal with that problem in probably a very unconventional way by our standards and, um, and ensure that the economy doesn't collapse. And when I say collapse, I would mean, you know, where there would be civil unrest, where, uh, you know, institutions start breaking down um, because, you know, people are starving and, you know, you'd be on the edge of revolution or something. Like, they will do everything possible to avoid that uh, scenario. So, um, so from that standpoint, we could say, okay, there's probably limited downside there. Uh, what could be on the upside? Well, uh, China, you know, as we know, has um, been catching up on the high technology front. Uh, the government has been pouring, you know, billions into R&D research in a number of areas, uh, whether it's environmental research, you know, and technology research and material sciences to biotech. Um, and so if they come up with an innovation that would be the equivalent of the internet that the U.S. government had been able to help create, uh, that could really launch China's economy up, you know, with an upside surprise. Uh, and given that uh, the sciences is an area that they heavily promote with their young people. Uh, they certainly graduate uh, more uh, students in the STEM in the STEM uh, categories, and so with more people working on these types of issues, it's uh, entirely possible that they come up with some breakthrough technology uh, that could really, um, you know, take. You know, China and maybe humanity in a completely different direction. Uh, and that would be, you know, the best case scenario. Uh, we don't know if that will happen, but, uh, but you know, it's out there as a possibility. Uh, areas where, you know, could be dangerous for China, uh, clearly, I, I mentioned geopolitically, uh, you know, the, the one area where I, I take no bets on is, you know, if U.S. and China really have a serious uh, confrontation that leads to some kind of security situation. Um, that, I would say all bets are off, um, but, you know, that would be uh, true for all countries in the world, I would think. Um, but hopefully, you know, barring something that extreme, uh, I think that China can still survive increased tensions uh, with the U.S. Uh, should things start escalating where uh, there are more quotas and tariffs being placed <coughs> on products uh, going back and forth between U.S. and China, um, while maybe in the short term, uh, you know, it could hurt some Chinese companies. Uh, but. I think because China has developed such a vast trading network, uh, they could, uh, you know, try to. Um, they could they could easily try to uh, fill in some of the lost demand elsewhere, or just uh, do something internally. But uh, what they have done is that they've really pushed forward with their Belt and Road Initiative. Um, 
and that is, uh, for those of you who are not familiar with it, basically China's version of the Marshall Plan to try to uh, build out infrastructure throughout the world uh, and bring in developing countries into the modern uh, economy and, and thereby creating more Chinas in the future. Um, and so this, you know, this effort is going to take obviously a lot of capital, a lot of manpower, and China is uh, pouring a lot of effort into this area. And I would say that this is sort of their backup strategy, I would say, if things um, with the West got more tense. And so, um, and so while that's not necessarily going to go completely smoothly, clearly uh, there have been deals that have been canceled in the past, uh, so they have to, you know, really negotiate with all these countries that they're going to try to build infrastructure with uh, to ensure that they're completely on board with all uh, what they signed up for. Um, it's, but I think it's still something that uh, the world uh, sees a desperate need for. Uh, there's clearly demand for that. And, um, and so where there is a problem and a demand, uh, certainly if China wants to meet it, uh, I don't think that, uh, that they're going to be stopped. And so, um, I, so I think that overall this is really uh, a more positive story that I see. And, um, and so with that, maybe I'll turn it over to okay, questions. <clears throat> Let's do. Some, I'm going to try something. We don't have a huge group today, so what I'd like to do is go around the room and have each person. I want to. I think it's great if we know who's in the audience because I want to make this more discussion. So if each person would just say who they are, that would be uh, terrific. So just go quickly around the room. Start right here, then say what company you're with. No, no nothing else. Jody from the South China Morning Post. Uh, more of the National Committee. Uh, Tom DeLuca, Fordham University. Leela Han with I couldn't hear you. Leela Han with Aon. Uh, Cole Randall with Brushfields. Uh, Maya Kelly, freelance. Michelle Jackson, freelance. Aaron Stanley, Carnegie Corporation of New York. Debbie Schwartz, Morgan Stanley. Richard Rowe, Energy Intelligence. Uh, Yunfei from the International Jim Lee from Association for Energy Affordability. Kathy Tompkins, EI Group. Irving Lee, retired insurance worker. Garrett Twitchell, Shell Digital Ventures. I'm uh, Joel Epstein. I'm uh, retired from uh, Chase Manhattan and AIG. Uh, two China groups. Uh, Patrick Ames, Spark Hill Group. Uh, Laurie Sherman, just interested. Xie <laughs> Yi uh, from China News Service. Uh, my name is Jesse Emanuel. I'm willfully unemployed. I just relocated from China back to the United States. So. Welcome back. Vicky <laughs> Franteco. Raymond Wong uh, from the Law of Wong Wong and Associates PC. Peggy Blumenthal, Institute of International Education. Margo Lamb on the National Committee. Finn Harkinson <coughs> from uh, uh, Executive Intelligence Review. Great. So uh, uh, a lot of financial folks and some others mixed in. Um, <clears throat> talk about the, you know, you've talked about kind of potential scenarios for collapse. Talk about, we saw 
uh, about a year and a half ago, real disruption in the Chinese stock market. Um, you know, where it made the disruption we saw day before yesterday seem minor. Um, talk about if is there any risk of contagion and why is the Chinese stock market divorced from the Chinese economy in terms of, you know, the Chinese economy is kind of like this or like this and the Chinese stock market is just like that? Well, a uh, couple things. So the Chinese stock market uh, is much smaller part of the GDP than, say, the U.S. stock market of ours. You have also, you know, far fewer investment management firms there uh, managing less money relative to what we have here. And I think that, you know, China's stock markets, they represent a very small handful of companies. Um, most of them are SOEs. A lot of uh, you know, the growth in China have been from small private companies that are not listed on uh, Chinese stock markets. And so, you know, they're driving Chinese growth there, but that's not necessarily reflected in their stock market. Um, and, you know, relatively speaking, far fewer people have their money in the stock market than, say, perhaps U.S. Uh, people having our money exposed in the stock market, whether it's via pension funds or insurance or other areas. Um, so with the Chinese, a lot of people have put their extra wealth in real estate as opposed to the stock market. Um, so it's somewhat decoupled that way. Um, I, I think that stock markets in general tend to be uh, volatile uh, because they're all about perceptions. And unless uh, you have some big players there that can sort of control the volumes and sort of the direction, it would be, uh, it could be sort of chaotic. And so if volumes are smaller in China, uh, then certainly they're more, they're, it's apt to be more volatile. Um, and, uh, and so I think that it'll, that will change over time. Um, but, you know, they haven't been around as long. And so, uh, so I would say that those are, you know, what I think are sort of the major reasons why. And it's just, it's divorced from the economy. That you just, you get great economic data and the market just ignores it. Well, I don't know if it's necessarily divorced. What you have is you have a lot of people in the stock market that are just retail investors. They may not be very well versed in economic languages. They're probably not watching all the economic data. A lot of retail investors, as you know, uh, are momentum traders, they probably just um, are in for the quick buck. Uh, they're not necessarily looking at fundamentals. Um, so, so you're not going to necessarily find a close correlation there. Um, so I think that's uh, part of the reason why. And, and, and even today, you know, even in the U.S. stock markets, right, people can argue, well, the fundamentals seem fine. Like, why is it suddenly so uh, volatile? Um, and, and went up too fast would be the argument <laughs> that we'd hear from some of our fund managers. But what's interesting is the I remember in Taiwan, 
uh, when we had a kind of a, a crash in 87 and then in 2008 when Lehman Brothers failed. What we had was serious social unrest that, you know, Taiwanese who had lost money in the stock market uh, came and demonstrated in, in rather large numbers. And in Hong Kong, uh, they, here you think Hong Kong the home of capitalism, they felt they had been misled in the purchase of, of some of these products. And ultimately the Hong Kong government actually had to, to step in. Um, we don't get that in the, well, I guess in 1933 we got it, but we haven't, we certainly, when we have these flash crashes, we don't see demonstrations. But in Asia, we do. I wonder if the Chinese government worries about that. I think the Chinese government worries about anything that can trigger uh, unrest. And certainly, uh, people who have demonstrated in China were uh, demonstrating either you know, really bad pollution in their areas or having their homes seized, uh, any number of things that are related to their well-being. Um, if there was more, more people uh, invested in the stock market, uh, the lower levels, then certainly that could be a possibility. Uh, but I would think that at this point, people that play in the stock market probably are um, more sophisticated and probably have extra cash and so aren't as, you know, I, I guess uh, hurt as much if it had crashed. But certainly some people would be hurt. But I think that, you know, the Chinese government... Um, you know, is trying its best to keep speculation from overtaking uh, the Chinese uh, financial markets. And so th that's why they've been, you know, rather slow in, in opening it up. We have Chinese in the audience and we have Americans who've lived in China. How many of you have been offered a product, a wealth management product, with a guaranteed rate that far exceeds anything that could have been obtained without taking on high risk. So somebody comes to you and says, all right, I absolutely will give you 25% a year. You mean in China? In China. In the United States where we've also been offered those products. <laughs> in the United States, it's tough to offer those products. Really? The, the yeah, SEC, <laughs> unless if your name is Bert Madoff, <laughs> yeah, but it, it's it's tough. The, the way the SEC regulates it, it's pretty tough to seriously market. But in China, literally, you know, on your phone every week, you're offered this kind of product. Am I the only person? Is it because my phone is somehow with that Beijing number? In, 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 in the back? Maybe they know I'm gullible. Uh, yes, uh, I have friends who like business attractors from China, and they come here looking for investment opportunity. And when they ask, like, what's the uh, return rate here? I said, like, I said, like, 10% will be considered risky, actually. I said, no, uh, like, lower than 50%, no. Right, exactly. <laughs> and it seems to me, what, what's so interesting is when you think of of an economic crisis, <clears throat> you th I think about massive defaults under these. A lot of these are um, 
uh, are Ponzi schemes, or not precisely, but you know they're using new investors' money to pay high returns to older investor money. But and the Chinese uh, CSRC doesn't really regulate these well. I mean, I think it's it's such an interesting kind of high risk uh, way of operating, and and people are constantly offering you this stuff. Well, that was part of the shadow banking system. Yeah, that, still is. Uh, right, that the government <coughs> has decided to tackle. And so I think that with their broad mandate to put out these rules to ensure that uh, they can't continue to operate that way, uh, there will be a deleveraging process that I'm sure will cause some hiccups, um, could actually cause the government, you know, the economy to slow down somewhat this year. Um, but I'm quite sure that these folks have been studying this very closely and uh, are trying to ensure that it, you know, not one thing will cause, uh, you know, a contagion that would lead yeah. to collapse. Um, because Every, everybody who's dealt with China for a long time says the folks who make economic policy if they make a mistake, they fix the mistake. Well, they'll like I mean, go and back and try to well, ring fence it, right? Yes. Because, mm -hmm. you know, whatever uh, wealth management product that collapses there, it'll be denominated in RMB, which is their currency. Right. And so given that the Chinese government has complete control over their currency, they're the ones that make up the rules as to how they're going to deal with that problem. So they can easily... Uh, you know, come up with new rules to handle these one-off situations or whatever they are um, as they go through the deleveraging do, process. Do you worry, again, I don't, I don't see this as a short or even midterm risk, but did you worry that what we're seeing today in China's economy is underfunding of the private sector and overfunding of the public sector? <laughs> What we've seen is a complete, if we had a screen I could show the data, but what we've seen is a complete flip of private credit. The ratio of private credit to public credit has reversed. So in 2013, you had around 72% of the credit provided to private enterprises, so 28% provided to state-owned enterprises. Now it's reversed. Now we have these inefficient monopolistic elephants getting 72% of the credit and 28% is going to the private sector. And we know, both Chinese who live in China and those who study China here, know that the state-owned sector is really inefficient. And it, the growth that has occurred in China has been in the private sector. Well, so aren't they planting the seeds of like long-term risk? Um, no, not necessarily. So their state-owned enterprises, certainly uh, there's some of them that are not very efficient. But if they were to close them down, they would still have to pay welfare to these people anyway. So for them to keep them employed, at least they keep them productive. And, uh, and while it may not be profitable, they can 
basically uh, use that extra uh, capacity in projects that are uh, what the government, what Beijing uh, is deeming as a priorities, namely the Belt and Road Initiative. And so, yes, we've seen sort of a, a move back to the state-owned enterprise sector, um, mostly because Beijing has these initiatives that no single private company is large enough uh, and would have the appetite to take on these sort of projects and risks. Uh, it requires the government taking the lead. And so, uh, so, what, what, so what essentially... Do you, what, do you, what kind of aluminum, cement, steel? Those are private companies everywhere else. What, 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 they have both private and public, right? And so I would the say... the overcapacity, in other words, the massive overcapacity that exists in China, which is not only public. destructive to China, it's destructive to the rest of the world, is because of this provision of credit. Unlimited credit to state-owned enterprises. Um, well, I'm not saying that that is necessarily a good way for them to deal with it, but they have basically tried to provision the extra capacity to, like I said, these other infrastructure projects, which can help absorb some of this uh, excessive capacity. Um, and like I said, their number one priority is not necessarily profitability. Their number one priority is actually to try to uh, keep social unrest from bubbling up. And the way to do that is to provide jobs. And so you have a lot of people who don't have a lot of skills. Um, and what are you going to do with these people? I mean, I think that you know economies all over the world are actually going to be faced with this problem of, you know, do you have all these people on welfare, or do you just try to keep them in their job and hopefully find new uh, ways to use whatever they're producing in a productive way. And so I think that's why uh, you see so much of this government money that has flipped into you know, Xi Jinping's pet projects, uh, such as the infrastructure projects. And he's also announced that he wants to reduce poverty uh, by 2020. And so how is he going to do that? I mean, they basically plan to move a lot of poor people into uh, homes uh, that have power, uh, energy, and, and try to lift their, uh, you know, their standard of living uh, by using government money to do this. And so, so yes, I think that from a percentage-wise, uh, We've seen a tilt that way, but that doesn't mean that the private sector isn't still robust. Uh, the private sector is getting a lot of money from venture capitalists. Uh, you're seeing a lot of uh, companies being funded uh, the way Silicon Valley uh, folks are being funded with equity, with you know companies acquiring them and having those kind of exits. And so uh, that new economy is actually thriving and driving a lot of upside growth in China. And so uh, we see basically, uh, you know, the government trying to provide a safety net to the SOEs that have not done well and for the people who are not keeping up, but also providing uh, sort of the fertile ground for a lot of entrepreneurs to actually develop new companies and to take the country in a different direction. 
Uh, and here they have created lots of incubators, uh, provided a lot of capital uh, to these folks so that um, so that that <clears throat> possibility is there. Um, boy, I always thought I was an optimist on China. Whenever I'm in a room, they, everybody says, you're the most optimistic, but Anne, you put me to shame. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, um, I, I, let me just, when, you know, in my investment career, I sought monopolies. Monopolies are great for investors because your profit margins are guaranteed. You don't have competition. You can provide cheap service. You know, nobody can come in and compete with you. It's a wonderful thing. It ain't great for the consumer and it ain't great for the economy, but it's great for the investor. When the Chinese government looks at these sectors that are inefficient and mon monopolistic, and their solution is merge the two oligarchs to become a monopoly. Something's wrong. That is not, that is not good economic theory. And it's ultimately gonna be a, uh, it's gonna tamp down economic growth and create troubles. Now I agree with you that they're all the Chinese, the, the people who make the economic policy are really smart, they're really well prepared. The organization department of the Chinese Communist Party makes sure that these folks have gone through incredible training before they reach the top. But boy, some of these policies, having said that, some of these policies are... 40 years I've watched it and it's been the private sector that has driven growth. And what I'm seeing is the pri yes, there is the venture, there is the equity side, but you know, you always need debt. And the private sector, the public sector is chasing the private sector out of the debt markets. And I see it in businesses that I look at and it's, um, it's troubling. but I'm not sure whether you meant that there would be no, that the government would somehow find a way so that nobody got burned, as opposed to other countries where there's a sharing of the burden. So could you talk a little bit about how you feel some of that, some if any of that pain will be borne by the people who made these stupid investments? in wealth management products. I mean, there's just billions of dollars of non-performing wealth management products. And do you think that the government's going to shelter all of it? Or will they let, under some conditions, certain types go down and people pay the price for it? Well, I can't speak for how they're going to deal with every single one. I'm sure that um, they're going to try to let some go and, and and we've seen actually some bankruptcies already um, so uh, they haven't caused contagion and you know how much they bailed out 
some of the folks and how much the other people had to eat those losses. Uh, it's not entirely clear, but I think that their objective is to make sure it doesn't spread. And so to the extent that if, you know, if it's just a number of super wealthy individuals, they're probably going to just have them eat the cost for the most part. But I think that um, what they're going to, and, and this is going to be trial and error, right? Because they've never done this uh, before, so they're probably going to make some mistakes. So I would not be surprised if there would be um, another <coughs> kind of panic that ensues uh, once they put this rule in place and um, and maybe there might be a messy unwind at some point. But if it, you know, got to be dicey, then yeah, the government will step in, try to, you know, freeze things. Much like what happened with their stock market. Like when it started to go into free fall, they basically stopped trading. They basically, you know, told various folks to kind of step in. And so we in the West might not agree with those steps and think, oh, that's so heavy handed. Uh, you know, that's not a free market, et cetera, et cetera. But from the Chinese standpoint, remember, they just have different objectives from us. They just want to make sure that the economy, um, you know, may hit a bump in the road, but it's not going to hit some, have a collision and just, you know, go off the rails. And so uh, will that create moral hazard? Perhaps, but, you know, we could say the Federal Reserve did something similar. In 2008, they went and saved some of these big banks when they could have all gone under because they had so, many, so much bad uh, derivative debt on their books um, and, and basically kept the financial markets afloat. And so a lot of people felt, you know, that is the hole too big to fail and were really upset by that. But, uh, but you know, the Federal Reserve and the U.S. government did it because they don't want, you know, the whole system to fall apart and people having going to barter systems and having total chaos that way, right? So, uh, so the governments are going to step in when they need to and uh, to the extent they need to. And so I would say the Chinese policymakers watched very closely what we did during that period, took lots of notes on what to do and what not to do, and I think that they're going to basically apply some of those lessons uh, with this deleveraging exercise. The, um, the United States Trade Representative a few weeks ago submitted to the U.S. Congress a report which, you know, is anybody wants to read it, it's, it's really quite amazing. It's almost 200 pages, and it's, it's worth reading if you're interested in U.S.-China uh, trade relations. The most important, right at the beginning, he says that the United States erred in allowing China to join the WTO on the terms that we did that the ensuing 16 years, close to 17 now, has created enormous in injury in the United States. And he then goes on in this 170 pages to list all the actions that China has taken that hurt the United States. He. Um, 
he basically argues that the WTO never envisioned having a country like China as a member, that the state-controlled economy allows it to do things that we never anticipated. And you almost can't fix it. When you read between the lines, he doesn't say this. You can't really fix it through WTO mechanisms. It's a, it's a fascinating read. I mean, it's really, if you're interested in U.S.-China relations, I almost think it's a, that and the national, uh, the strategic, um, the national strategic and security documents are equally worth it, but this one is about ten times longer. Um, do you think, if this is more than words, then the solar panel tariffs and the washing machine tariffs are nothing, that we're going to start fining China for IPR violations, for uh, any state participation in a particular industry. So, you know, they've already, we already have steel and aluminum and cement and building materials and telecommunication. I can just go on and on and name it. It'd be most of the, most of the economy. Is there a risk to China's economy, which you do mention in the book, that kind of the U.S.-China relationship could really derail China? Um, there's certainly a risk. I think any trade war, you're going to create uh, risks that's going to hurt both the U.S. and China. Uh, and uh, this is going to restrict flows of information, flows of commerce, and um, it's going to make things you know, much more difficult for citizens of both countries uh, because it's going to create inflation, it's going to cause unemployment. Um, but I think that what I talk about in my book is that if the U.S. decides to go down this very extreme route, um, China can still survive this. So China's actually already been denied um, various acquisitions. You know, China tried to, you know, buy semiconductor companies, try to, uh, you know, in buy various high-tech companies and have been blocked by CFIUS. And so what China has done instead is try to just uh, have their own homegrown domestic uh, innovation centers to develop all this technology on their own. And China, uh, I think, has gotten to the point where they have that capability to do that. Yes, it's probably going to take them longer, um, but they're, uh, they have the brain power, the manpower, uh, the willpower to, to pursue this route. So, so I think that uh, if the U.S., decides to go hardcore and say, you know, we're just not going to deal with China on these fronts. Uh, in the end, the U.S. might actually lose out, given that China is uh, actually pursuing a lot of things like AI, uh, like, uh, you know, a whole number of high-tech initiatives where uh, it's a very close race in terms of innovation with the U.S. And if China 
somehow pulls ahead, then it would be the U.S. loss if we decide that uh, we don't want to engage uh, in trade with China, uh, because then we might be missing out on any of the latest technology. Uh, so, so I would, you know, I would say that it's it's you know not going to be a pretty pretty picture if uh, if the U.S. decides to pursue this, but. Um, I think that given, you know, what I've seen in terms of what China's developed in terms of their capabilities, uh, you know, they're quite capable at this point, I think, of, of replicating a lot of this on their own. I had a hand back here. Yeah. Uh, um, I just want to say it's a great book. It's compact. And I added to uh, a little red book, a little yellow book. Um, I had some questions about uh, economic development in terms of um, the Belt and Road Initiative. I think there's a lot of naysayers saying that now China's creating a lot of debt in a lot of these countries where they're providing loans. And I was wondering what your perspective is on economic development, how China's economic development is different from this in the Western form of economic development. That while there is debt, I, I, I don't see it anticipating into like some, something that would create negative growth. Uh, I mean, China's economic development now is more about you know trying to create reforms uh, to sort of uh, address whatever um, un imbalances exist in the economy because they inherited a lot of obviously the SOEs. They operated as a command economy. Uh, before they join the modern economy, right? And so, uh, so they have a lot of legacy that they have to deal with, and a lot of the reforms are to try to uh, address these issues. And they're going to um, basically take their time to slowly pivot away from that into more of a market-oriented economy. And so I don't know if that's what you're asking me. Loans in terms of foreign enterprises, loans to foreign countries is that going to basically prevent these countries from not developing property, or do you think that's something that is necessary but to create positive growth? Some of developing countries that China's working, especially around the Wait, so you're asking me whether having foreign companies? Basically, China providing assistance, economic assistance loans. Oh, to the developing countries, right. whether that that's for the developing. I think it's all the devils in the details, right? So I think it, it depends on how they structure a lot of these things. But, you know, a lot of these countries, they don't have a lot of technical know-how and China's built a lot of expertise around infrastructure development. And so for them to go in there and basically uh, design whatever infrastructure plans they have and, uh, and teach these people or manage uh, the project that way, I don't see how that could be wrong. Um, once the infrastructure is developed, then those local economies can start to flourish in ways that they can't at this point. And, uh, and then over time, they'll develop the expertise, I'm sure, to 
uh, take on the big engineering projects too, but <coughs> that would take time, right? It's not something that people are gonna learn right away uh, if there have been an agrarian society, for instance. You from the private, from the developing countries that China's going into. I mean, if they um, have problems paying it off, China, I'm sure, will renegotiate those uh, the debt in in ways that they will roll it over, or they'll just change the terms so that um, so that they can pay it off. I mean, debt is again just another thing that you know people invent and create and it can be modified. It's not set in stone in any way. So- um, Talk to Venezuela. <laughs> and so, so- And their relationship with China today. Right, so, so basically it's just a contract really of you know, two parties and what they want to agree to. And so if, uh, if they miss a debt payment, then they'll just go back to the negotiating table and Right, <laughs> and and just figure out a, a you know another deal. A, a great example that I've recently run into is I have a really good friend. He's from the Kachin Rebel Group in Myanmar province, and recently China had one of these initiatives where they were building a dam in the, the northern parts of Myanmar. That's uh, <coughs> actually in the Kachin area held territory, and they negotiated with the the Burmese government. They didn't negotiate it with the local Kachin governments. They have their own kind of independent government set up there. And so one of the things that they did is the catching people were really upset about the deal. They didn't like the way that Chinese negotiated with the, with the Burmese government, didn't negotiate with them. And so actually um, Beijing, the capital, they called up my friend to come up there with a catching delegation to actually negotiate specifically with them and say, what do you guys want? Like, we want this dam in place. We want these infrastructure projects going through the catching not state, but catching territory, all territory. Uh, what can we do for you, as well as negotiating the original projects? And so actually this dam has been shut down for a couple of years, but they're just doing basically all they can to negotiate properly with the, the locals there in all aspects. And they're just doing a very good job of basically negotiations in those aspects. The well. Chinese would love that if they switched it and had people going in and negotiating directly with the Xinjiang government or the <laughs> Tibetan government. No, they were like that. Peggy. Yeah, I, uh, one of the more unusual um, retaliation strategies that I've read about recently, if we get into a trade war, um, came from the Global Times, and I don't know what you think of their uh, relationship to the, to the Chinese government, but they said uh, if the U.S. Uh, starts uh, slapping on tariffs, we can just uh, stop sending Chinese students to the United States, um, which was an interesting idea and terrifying to the U.S. higher education community, but there are many reasons why the Chinese students may want to start, start staying at home for all these good economic opportunities, but do you think that such a strategy, do you think the Chinese seriously would try to stop it? I don't think that would be wise. I mean, I, I would see them suggesting that, you know, people not necessarily spend their tourist dollars here as a, you know, more logical way to, to hurt us as opposed well, to... Except that it would benefit them to keep these very smart students home, except if they're their I mean, I guess what I'm saying is, is this just a, just a, a thing that they threw out just to <coughs> seem entertaining, or is it a trial? Well, words, words are cheap, right? Yeah. So... Okay. <laughs> So they could 
throw all kinds of things out there <coughs> and they may not follow through with it. Um, I, I'm more worried, Peggy, you know. I think I circulated and you saw some of the language in the um, national security strategy right. and the national defense strategy which talks about the um, universities and Silicon Valley as engines of entrepreneurship which are stolen by foreign students. So especially in the STEM area, it, it didn't say so, but you, you could easily add the next sentence by saying, well, we need to restrict Chinese students in STEM. Now, I called the chairman of universities I know. I said, I hope you guys are standing up and screaming that this would be catastrophic for the United States. Um, and I think they were. I think they are, but I think also there is heavy screening of uh, visa candidates coming from China and from some other countries. Um, on the other hand, an awful lot of Chinese students are coming now, not in STEM. I mean, it used to be, it was all STEM. Right. But now, you know, kids are coming, just coming. <laughs> They're much less worried about the non-STEM right. students. But it, it was quite a jar, when I read, I, I was, it's very jarring. Yeah. Very jarring. Tom. No, it's, just, um, uh, it's very interesting what you're saying. That it sounds a little charitable in terms of China's approach. Uh, of course, the U.S. has a long history of feeling it's being charitable to, to the rest of the world, too. And I, was, uh, I just wanted to connect that. I, you made a comment before, but I'm not sure I caught what you meant by it. Something about under certain conditions China would create other Chinas. Do you recall what you said? Because I'm not. I, I was right. In relation to you, so I was wondering if you could expound on that a little bit. What you meant by that? So the Chinese have basically um, decided that w their experience was worth sharing with other developing countries who wanted to also, I guess, develop uh, economically in the same way. Uh, basically admiring, uh, very admiring of China's economic miracle. And so <coughs> China basically has um, sort of offered various countries that, oh, you know, we can share our lessons on like how we've approached economic development. And this is, you know, uh, how we did it. It was, you know, based on cheap labor, based on infrastructure investment, et cetera, et cetera. And so, um, with the Belt and Road Initiative, that would be one way of them exporting, you know, those ideas uh, to these countries. So, but, so. But as, you, as, you, as you suggested before, though, it, it seems the Chinese model for itself is, is very much a political model for all the reasons that you said. So would that also be the, the political model they're exporting, sometimes called something like the Beijing Consensus or something like that? Um, well, you could read it as such. I don't think they see it that way, right? Because they basically see it as sort of a a practical approach to economic development. So they're not necessarily advocating authoritarianism per se. Um, neither are they advocating democracy. They're basically, you know, saying, well, these are the steps we took to ensure that um, economic development can take root and start growing organically uh, 
And if we want to interpret that as, oh, you know, a more hands-on command economy approach, state, you know, capitalism, what have you, um, I guess you could you could make that draw that conclusion, but like I don't think it's explicitly that way. So, I mean, the, China has uh, in the last thirty years <coughs> taken um, something like seven hundred million people out of poverty, <coughs> um, and um, I, you know, I think uh, the United States has maybe put uh, twenty people, twenty million people in, in poverty instead, as, as comparison. <laughs> but, um, uh, you know, when they go into uh, countries like uh, Syria or Libya or, you know, places where, where the United States and uh, Great Britain have destroyed, <coughs> um, uh, you know, you, you can say that the, the, in, their, in their mind, the opposite of war is development and they are spreading uh, development across the world. Um, uh, and, um, you know, by, and, and they can, you can actually scientifically know that certain uh, infrastructure projects will spur uh, economic activity and in the future create um, trading partners, like in, in Africa these days, you know. Uh, and, um, <clears throat> yeah, so, and, I, and um, in, in my opinion, um, um, China is, is also trying to end geopolitics in the world by, by their uh, Belt and Road Initiative. And uh, end geopolitics, you know, so uh, basically end wars in the future. And, and you people should probably start thinking about, you know, it's, I think it's petty to, to talk about, um, um, you know, trade wars, you know. China has this idea of, uh, they call it win-win strategy, uh, so that when they go to country, they, they really mean win-win, you know, both are going to win, not like uh, uh, Western uh, zero-sum games. So, yeah, I think uh, the rest of the world uh, will see um, they're going to like what China is doing for them and uh, create small Chinas, you could say. China. Other questions? Patrick, you must, you've been quiet. <laughs> How do the markets fit into all of this? You worked at a Chinese organization for a number of years? The good thing about the Chinese stock market is the Chinese regulator, the CSRC, the Chinese SEC, is like a risk manager. You can't, you can't make more than 10% a day, and you can't lose more than 10%. You can't make more than 10%, and you can't lose more than 10%. So, you know, it's a, uh, and it's dislocated from the Chinese economy because there's only, on Shanghai, there's what, 2,100 stocks, and then on Shenzhen, there's 18,000, there's a, but that's going to increase every year. Last year, 340 IPOs. That's going to get higher and higher. But it's funny you mentioned the whole Belt and Road. I actually think China needs the Belt and Road to feed its commodity. So, Citic has storage facilities for commodities. 
So China right now has 26 cities with 26 MTR systems. With what? MTR. 26 subway systems. Mm -hmm. Metro. Mm -hmm. Right. By 2020, do you know how many they're going to build? 40 new systems and 40 new cities. That's $900 billion. Right? No, you need, you need transportation. You don't, you know, we have a screwed up system here, the queue line that took 20 years. It's <laughs> great. Is it really? Oh yeah. Well, look at all the stoppages now, you know? But, uh, so you have so you have 40 new cities, 40 new railroads. So let's say there's another 200 million of middle class coming out there. By 2020, President Xi wants 550, right? Let's just say, it's 200 of that. You give that 200 million people Hong Kong square footage living, which is 100, 200 square foot per person, you don't have enough housing in China. There's a reason why for overcapacity. And then many of the SOEs didn't close their northeast operations in Shanxi, the coal companies. They need overcapacity to keep commodity pricing down. There's not enough commodities to feed the China growth effect. So they need that Silk Road developed. If you, were, if you find out where they're putting their money, they're trading for commodities, a lot of royalty agreements. So if they default on their debt, they don't pay their debt back, it's a trade-off. So debt is a social science that can be restructured and recreated to feed what China needs. It's actually pretty sad. So that's my view. Other folks, we haven't heard from a lot of folks in the audience. I have another question, if that's okay. Sure. Go ahead, since we've got um, silence from the others. You, you were talking about how there may be a, a new type of technology that, that China might come out with that revolutionize the world. And of course, the big buzz and the hype about the new technology is, is blockchain technology. Um, I'm kind of curious if, if you have any kind of thought about how the Chinese government is looking at blockchain technology in the future. And uh, it, it seems like just inherently kind of a technology that the, the, the government would not be super okay with because it kind of supersedes some controls. Um, but uh, I don't know if you have any ideas about this technology and how it's going to affect the Chinese economy. Well, blockchain, from what I understand, can be applied to anything and everything, right? Yeah. So far, the government has only come out against Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, um, but that doesn't mean they're against blockchain. Um, I think blockchain actually uh, could really streamline and make efficient a lot of things. Um, you know, it could completely overturn economics as we know it too, right? Because today, a lot of the industries like the music industry or uh, advertising or all these other industries are, you know, because they're being digitized, a lot of those royalties are going away and it's easy to copy and whatever, but blockchain can actually track all those very seamlessly, right? If someone wanted to use an image and, and, and they're not paying royalties, the blockchain can find it, right, with AI and then basically have someone pay, you know, the actual uh, originator of that uh, some kind of royalty fee, yeah. and and it would be done very cheaply because you don't have to have you know people uh, intermediating this. So I think that blockchain would be very promising, and I don't see why the Chinese government wouldn't embrace it in some form or other. Uh, 
but you know, I think it's in its early days, and so I mean, we'll just see what sort of regulations <coughs> will revolve around that. It's hard for anyone to know now. <laughs> yeah. Well, join me in thanking Anne for giving so generously of her time. The book is available outside, and she's available to sign it.